All right. Well, welcome to our adult Sunday school. Today we'll be in Colossians chapter 2 and uh, verses 1 through 7. So let me go ahead and pray and then we'll get started. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the wonderful opportunity and the privilege of coming together this morning to study your word. And we just pray that you will bless our time together. We pray that you will oversee what is said and uh, that our time, both of fellowship as well as study of a word, will be profitable to help transform us more into the image of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. As we know in this passage, now Paul, uh, having towards the end of the first chapter, dealt with some aspects in terms of of his ministry now that leads into the beginning of chapter 2 in these first seven verses where he clearly expresses his aspect of his love and his uh, concern for the Colossians with whom he's writing this epistle. We know that there were a congregation in Colossae and probably one in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Those were cities in the Lycos Valley, and as he's addressing them and dealing with this ministry that we see in the passage we have before us this morning, the heart of Paul, expressed particularly in the first verse, and then that leads into this thought of concerns he has for those whom he's writing the epistle to. And within that, then he makes some expressions of his desire for them, and, and those are the things we would look at this morning because these apply directly to all of us. So let's go ahead and read the passage. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit." Rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Now, it's clear from this epistle that Paul had a deep love for the church and the churches he was writing to. And we see this in Paul throughout his epistles, reflected his love for the church and for the brethren. He frequently expressed his love in his epistles. In Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he wrote in chapter 3 and verse 2, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11, he wrote, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, our heart is opened wide. 
in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. And to the Philippians, he wrote in chapter 1, verse 7, I have you in my heart. So we see expressions of affection from Paul to all the, the churches to whom he ministered and to the church of Christ. He loved the church, but he loved the church most because he loved Christ. And he knew the truth that's expressed in chapter 4 and verse 21 of 1 John, which says, This commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So immediately as we think of this, we think of applying this to ourselves. Because even though Paul is speaking of his ministry and he's addressing the, the Colossians and uh, those in the Lycus Valley as one who is ministering to them, but yet the principles that we see in this passage apply certainly to all of us in our fellowship and relationship with each other and with the church. It was his love for Christ and the church that enabled Paul to endure the physical suffering that we see that's manifested throughout the New Testament, as well as the spiritual and emotional struggle that he had for the churches as he faced throughout his ministry, false teachers, and then had to deal with the effects of that on the churches. It was allowed him to bear the daily pressure of concern for all churches, as he expresses in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. Not just the external persecution and suffering, but the internal struggle for the churches. But because of that love, he could endure the defections, the false teachers, and then the personal abuse. Indeed, he could endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. That they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it, eternal glory. And as we look at this passage this morning, we'll follow the commentary of uh, Pastor John MacArthur in terms of how he uh, explains this passage. And uh, as we look at Paul, his love for the church caused him to write this letter to the Colossian churches because they were in danger because false teachers had come into the church and were presenting a danger to the church, even though at this point they had not had uh, large defections. But there were two main aspects that false teachers were attacking. One was the deity of Christ, and the other, the sufficiency of Christ. And, you know, as we think about this, that's pretty much even to our day, right, what false religions and false teachers frequently attack the deity of Christ and, this, or, and or the sufficiency of Christ. So it's important as we look at this epistle how this applies to us. Now Paul in this passage wanted the uh, Colossians to know the great struggle he had for them on their behalf even though many had not seen his face. Verse 1 of chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. So we see, now we know that Epaphras was probably the one that founded the Church of Colossae. And he comes to Paul with the news of the false teachers. And he 
though had not met, as we see, there's many of those who were the church. So even though he had not met them yet, his love is clearly expressed. His love for them is here is clearly expressed. So we see now Paul's love was not selective. He loved the whole church, not those that he knew personally or those that were just close to him. And that kind of unselfish love um, characterizes Paul, should characterize all spiritual leaders, and really it should characterize all of us. So as we look at what he's saying here, we think of how this relates to us. Now the word struggle here in the first verse is the word agon, from which we get our English word agony. And so it has a sense of struggling to the point of agony, of really um, not just a superficial concern, but a deep struggle, a deep uh, concern for those he's writing to. It's a different form of the same word that he used in chapter 1, verse 29, to speak of his striving in the ministry, when he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, in which mightily works within me. Paul's deep love, even for those he had never met, reflects his love for Christ, the head of the church. And um, Paul, as he then expresses that to, in this passage to the Colossians, we find several desires or goals that he expresses for the Colossians. And he lists them in these verses. And so we find that he wants the Colossians to be strong in heart, be united in love, to be settled in their understanding, walking in Christ and overflowing with gratitude. And we'll go over these as we go through the passage. Now, his desire, of course stems from his concern for them. And as he expresses this, then as we begin it in chapter, in verse 2, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, the first part of, of verse 2. The basic meaning of the word this here, you translated encourage, and is to call or come, along, come alongside or to call alongside. Now, a person can be called alongside for many purposes, and the word has a wide range of meanings depending, of course, on the context, and they include to entreat or appeal, to summon, to comfort, to exhort, to encourage. In our present context, however, it could also be translated to strengthen because the Colossians were beset by false teachers and needed strengthening Now, commentator William Barclay cites an example of the use of this same word, which is the word parakaleo from the classical Greek, and it sort of parallels the use that Paul uses here. He says there was a Greek regiment which had lost heart and was utterly dejected. The general sent a letter to talk to it to such purpose that courage... I'm sorry, the general sent a leader to talk to the regiment to such purpose that courage was reborn and a body of dispirited men became fit again for heroic action. 
And so that's sort of the meaning that Parakaleo has here in this passage. It is Paul's prayer that the church may be filled with that courage and uh, which then can cope with the situation that they're facing. And certainly as we think of, of this in, in our lives, we certainly want to have the courage and the strength to face the difficulties that we face as believers in this world. Now when Paul expresses desire that their hearts be strengthened here, he was not referring just to their emotions. Uh, the biblical writers associated the emotions with what the uh, King James Version uh, calls the bowels, and we see that in, in certain in dif- different uh, portions of Scripture. And they did so because strong emotions produce physical reactions in the bowels, in the abdomen. And so even today, someone who's anxious and feels, we'd say, you know, we have butterflies in, in your stomach. But as you, the word heart, the juice here, um, when used figuratively in the Bible, it's usually more general and refers broadly to the inner person, to the center of life. It often equates specifically to the mind. It involves the emotions, certainly. It involves the mind and the will, the whole inner person. And the parts in the scriptures refers also to the soul, as part in the heart. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 23, the Lord describes himself as he who searches the minds and hearts and will give to each one of you according to your, your deeds. So the heart here is sort of a synonym for the mind. Using the term heart as a general term for thinking, uh, Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So as we think of this, we want to keep this in mind because oftentimes when we speak of the heart in, in, in our context in general, oftentimes people just think of the emotions. And, but certainly, in this passage, it involves much more than that. Revelation 18.7 says of Babylon, For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. Psalm 53 Verse 1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Of course, here we see a direct appealing to what the person is thinking, is, is considering. And as these verses indicate, the heart refers to the mind where thinking takes place. Now, the emotions certainly don't remove the emotions from, from the person and the way who we are and how we act. But the emotions respond to what is in the heart, to what the mind perceives. And that's why the way to control the emotion then is through the mind. When the mind is filled with biblical truth, then the emotions will respond accordingly. It is a dangerous thing to to let the emotions be the ones that lead rather than our mind. For that reason, the Bible counsels in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. It says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. That's Proverbs 4, 23. And that's an important verse because it, it shows the fact of how we are to watch over our hearts because of 
really is what rules, truly rules our life. Proverbs 23, verse 19 says, Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. The advice is to direct your heart, direct your mind and your will in the way that you should go. So believers are to guide their hearts. We are to guide our hearts that we may follow the path of pleasing God. For that, of course, we need God's help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 26 and verse 2 states, Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 states, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Just search me, O God, and know my heart. What fills the heart then will inevitably issue in behavior. Our behavior is governed by our heart. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and 35, the Lord said, For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man, out of his good treasure, brings forth what is good, and the evil man, out of his evil treasure. So we see here that the heart is a synonym for the mind. Using the term heart as the general term for the thinking faculty, Jeremiah stated that, as we saw before. Now, what is the means of a strong mind? What does it mean? Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16 says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. In the inner man, of course. Again, this is uh, referring to the heart. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, strengthens the hearts of those who yield their lives to his control. As a matter of fact, it's one of the names, that's one of his names of the Holy Spirit, uh, his helper. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And then in chapter 14 and verse 26, the Lord said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance of all that I said to you. And in chapter 15 and verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And then in chapter 16 and verse 7 of John, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I I go, I will send him to you. So Helper, in the Greek, is the noun form of parakaleo, which is the same word that Paul is using here in the passage that we're looking at. And so it could be translated strengthener in those passages. 
Now, true inner strength, though, comes only from being filled with the Spirit. We find this that Paul, after his conversion, um, he was strengthened. He says in Acts 9.22, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. As he lived his life in the power of the Spirit, he experienced strength. And eventually then he could say, we are afflicted in every way, but not cursed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. So he could endure all of that because he was strong in heart. He was strengthened by the helper, the Holy Spirit. Although the Spirit is a divine strengthener, he uses means, he uses human instruments, and of course the main means that he uses, the Word of God. It is through the Word that the Holy Spirit, Spirit strengthens us. But we are also strengthened by human instruments. Chapter 22 and verse 32 of Luke, the Lord Jesus told Peter, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He commands here Peter to strengthen his brothers so Peter would have a role in strengthening his brothers. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 32, it says Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. Paul sent Timothy to the Thessalonians to strengthen their faith, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. An important part of Paul's ministry, though, then, was strengthening the believers. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 41, states that he was trapped, Paul was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So God uses gifted men to teach and strengthen the church, and strong hearts then result in a powerful Christian life. The strengthening of our hearts are reflected in a life that is lived for Christ. So when believers are strengthened by the Spirit, then Christ will richly dwell in their hearts. They will be rooted and grounded in love. They will know the love of Christ and be filled with all the fullness of God. That's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and through 19. Then Christ, through them, will do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that they can ask or think. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. As we go on in the, the verse... Paul says then that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love. Having been knit together in love. Now fervent love is the necessary balance of a strong mind. You know, our lives as believers is not just a uh, mindless enthusiasm, but neither is it a lifeless intellectual uh, endeavor, orthodoxy. So there is a balance there. There's the important aspect of the knowledge in our hearts and our minds, but then the important aspect of the love. And so uh, Paul addresses that here, saying, having been knit together in love. He states the centrality of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, a well-known passage, verses 1 through 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love... I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. The word used here, in going back to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 2, the word that's translated knit together means to unite or to bring together. And we see sort of the picture, if you think, think of someone knitting something together, how the different threads and so are, are united intimately. This participle here explains the main verb that may be encouraged by further defining the strengthened heart as one that is filled with love. So as believers, we share a common love, a life with love at its center, with love as its basis. And all believers possess the same eternal life. All come to Christ in the same way, individually, but we all are saved into the body of Christ. We have uh, no lone, lone ranger Christians, right? And we are saved in the same way, and we're all placed in the body of Christ by the same Spirit. And the church's unity is not as an organization, but it's an organic unity. It is an organic unity that is created by Christ, that is upheld by the Holy Spirit. We are all one in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And certainly, the Lord Jesus, in chapter 7, 17, verses 20 23 of John, prayed, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, and I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you have loved me. We see here the importance in this prayer of the Lord. He prays for unity in the body, but it is a unity that is established as a positional unity that we have in him. Now then, we are called to live out that unity that the Holy Spirit has determined. And pastor, theologian Francis Schaeffer called the unity of the church the final apologetic to the watching world. The final apologetic to the watching world. And he went on to, uh, to write and says in John 13, that's John chapter 13, the point was that if an individual Christian does not show love or others, other true Christians, the world has a right to judge that he is not a Christian. But in John 17 and verse 21, the passage we looked at, Jesus is stating something else which is much more cutting, much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true and that Christianity is true, 
unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. So it is a very important subject, isn't it? The Christians display unity in practice. That was the main concern of Paul. That that unity that is organic in the body of Christ is expressed in our lives, in our practice. And so he wrote to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And in, at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, he says, he commanded them to be like-minded and to live in peace. And certainly, uh, this is throughout the New Testament present. He admonished the Philippians to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, serving together for the faith of the gospel. And in chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians, it says, and to make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. I'm sorry, and that was chapter 2, verse 2 of Philippians. So a key practical unity is found also in Ephesians chapter 4, verses three, verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Notice here that he's not saying we need to create a unity in the body of Christ, but we must be diligent to preserve the unity that positionally we have in the body of Christ. A key practical unity is, is, uh, is found here. Preserving this unity of the Spirit is accomplished by being peacemakers. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And as peacemakers... We love one another. And this love is evident when believers put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing one another, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And that's chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 of Colossians. And so we find that kind. Uh, practical love is the perfect bond of unity. And notice it is a humble love. It is a humble love. Love is always, the Bible, linked with humility. After urging the Philippians to pursue unity in, in this same chapter of Philippians, then Paul states in, in, um, at the beginning of the chapter, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, that's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then he goes on to show them how that is to be done. So he is calling them to be united in one purpose. But then, and of course, he says, do nothing, in verse 3 of Philippians uh, chapter 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important 
than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in you, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then, amazingly, in the next verses, he goes on to present the tremendous picture of Christ and his incarnation and his humility as an illustration of what they are to do. And he says in verse 6, who, referring to Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he presents this illustration of the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for us. And what he presents is his his humility expressed there as an illustration as how we are to serve and be with one another. So humility is a key that opens the love to of love, the door to of love and unity in the church. And the Lord's self-emptying and his humility and obedience, even to the point of death, is a perfect illustration of that. So when we as believers practice self-effacing humility, we'll be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, be united in spirit and intent on one purpose. So the Apostle John also saw Christ Christ's offering of himself as a supreme example of love when he said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, we know, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But since most Christians will not have the opportunity to die for others, then John gives a more practical test of love as he follows then in verses 17 and 18 of 1 John 3. Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So loving someone is not defining, defined by just having you know, warm emotional feelings to that person, but by meeting that person's need, by serving them sacrificially. So love is first action and then emotions follow. So the strengthened heart, as Paul, going back to Colossians here, presents here, the strengthened heart is a heart that has learned to love. And so, as believers, we are knit together in love. And there's also, as we go on here, in the, the latter part of verse 2 and, the, and verse 5, it is in attaining to all the wealth, wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Paul here then expresses his desire for the Colossians to experience all the wealth that comes from full assurance. Now, without assurance, we as believers cannot enjoy all the blessings, all the wealth that comes from full assurance. 
we can enjoy our blessings that are ours in Christ. Someone who is doubtful, who is not sure, can enjoy the blessings that he does have in Christ. For that reason, Peter says in chapter two and verse, uh, in Second Peter chapter one and verse ten, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and his, and his choosing you. And then he said, how is that to be done? Well, in verses 5 and 8 of that same chapter, he says, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. The word then that Paul uses here in Colossians uh, chapter 2 and verse 2, that's translated understanding, uh, this word in the Greek refers to applying biblical principles to everyday life. We may have the knowledge of the word, but those then we must have the understanding to apply them, or the wisdom to apply them to our everyday life. And that's our uh, command to do, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, it says that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish unto him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So we find that a natural man can't do this, cannot apply it, cannot understand the biblical principle and apply it to the life. Because those who are according to the flesh set their minds in the things of the flesh, and they're darkened in their understandings. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, and Romans chapter 8, verse 5. So we as, when we as believers then experience spiritual truth by living it, it becomes truly understood and leads to assurance of our own salvation. Because we may have the knowledge intellectual knowledge, but if we don't live out that knowledge, then we lack the assurance. When we live out that knowledge, then it, that in itself gives us the assurance of being in Christ. Therefore, knowing the truth and acting on it leads to full assurance of understanding. Now, the primary problem, then, is not a lack of knowledge, but a failure to apply the truth that we know. So those are the important things. We need to be in the Word to, of course, have the knowledge of the truth, but then we need to act our li and live out those truths in our lives. And that truth then finds its expression in a strong heart and works itself out in love of fellow believers. And then, in turn, it results in a deep conviction of assurance in the believer himself. Now, as Paul is writing this, remember he's writing as a response to the heresy that's plaguing the Colossians. And so Paul stresses the need for the Colossians' understanding to include then the true knowledge of God's mystery. In this verse, we see that he says that. He says, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. That's the latter part then of verse 2 of chapter 2 of Colossians. At the heart of the understanding here, we need to have a subtle and sure conviction of Christ's deity and of his sufficiency. In Christ himself, the hidden 
God was manifested to mankind in his incarnation. We saw him as we see, saw the Father. Says. So in that sense, he is God's mystery. We, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 is interesting. It records what was probably a first century hymn. And so verse 16 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy states, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken, taken up in glory. We see here uh, six short expressions, and it, this hymn here summarizes the gospel. It says that God became man in Christ. He died for our sins. He triumphed over death. He was honored by angels and feared by demons and ascended into heaven. So this is really the heart of the message of the gospel, and it is our mission to proclaim it to the world. Now, all those phrases in that passage in 1 Timothy refer to Christ, and it's vitally important for us to have a grasp on Christ's deity. No person then can be a Christian without this true knowledge of Jesus Christ as the incarnate God. Yet, many Christians who affirm the deity of Christ live as if he were not the one in him on whom all spiritual sufficiency resides. So we must have the true knowledge and understanding of Christ's deity as well as his sufficiency. Now, Jesus is the one in whom are hidden, Paul says here, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, so he alone is sufficient. Now, the word he uses here for hidden in, um, in verse 3, now we're looking at in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, is from the word from which we get our English word apocrypha. It was used by the heretics to refer to the writings containing their secret knowledge. And so Paul here uses this word because there's no hidden spiritual knowledge necessary for salvation and sanctification outside of Christ. So he's also here involving the polemic against the false teachers, stating that Christ is sufficient for all. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ are hidden from all but Christians. Because Christ is sufficient, there's no need to go to other writings of any philosophy or cult or psychology or any outside source to complement our knowledge to be for us to be able to live out our Christian lives. Christ is the source of all true spiritual knowledge. That knowledge is also crucial to our assurance because Doubts about Christ's sufficiency brings doubts about his ability to do what he promised. So we must be assured in his sufficiency. And so Paul then goes on in verse 4 and expresses a reason for his concern. He says in verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. says a comment... Paul, a commentator then paraphrases this verse 
uh, Paul's thought here as follows, I wish to warn you against anyone who would lead you astray by specious argument and persuasive rhetoric. You see, only when we are well-founded in the knowledge and in the sufficiency of Christ can we resist false teaching. The basic attack of all false systems in our history has been to deny either Christ's deity, his sufficiency to save and sanctify, or to deny both. Any group of person doing so is guilty of teaching, as 1 Timothy states in chapter 4, verse 1, doctrines of demons. And, of course, it's another gospel. Now, believers need to have a subtle conviction about Christ's deity and sufficiency to be able to withstand the onslaughts of false teaching. We are surrounded by it. We are, of course, in our modern day, bombarded with all kinds of different media. And it is only when we are grounded in Christ's deity and sufficiency that we can have this knowledge and assurance that we can withstand and we warn about this throughout the New Testament. We find it in Romans chapter 16, verse 17 and 18. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, Peter states, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Notice again the emphasis of prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 16 and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result... We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Notice in this passage here in Ephesians in particular, the parallels to what Paul is stating in the passage we're looking at today in Colossians. Now having warned then the Colossians to continue to stand firm, Paul then goes on in verse 5 of our passage. And he says, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. So Paul, although he's absent from the Colossians in body, because he's in prison in Rome when he's writing the epistle, he was present with them in spirit. And, and their good discipline and their stability of their faith in Christ caused him to rejoice. 
the word he uses here for good discipline and for stability are both sort of military terms and they're suggested by Paul's close contact perhaps with the Roman soldiers during his imprisonment when he's writing the epistle. The first word refers to a line of soldiers drawn up for battle, where the second one refers to the solidity of a formation of soldiers. Both are sort of military terms were expressed having uh, being ready for battle and being in order. And so as we take them together, they express Paul's joy that individually and collectively the Colossians are standing firm against the attacks of false teaching. So his goal, his desire for them is that they remained settled in their present true understanding and not yield to doubt from those attacks. And then, as we look at the final two verses here, the verse 6 and the first part of verse 7, notice he says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up. Therefore, the expression here, therefore, builds sort of the concluding exhortation of Paul, of what Paul has said in verses 2 to 5, sort of builds up to this final exhortation that he gives us here in verses 6 and 7. Because the Colossians have received Christ, Jesus the Lord. They have subtle convictions about his deity and sufficiency and are standing firm against the attacks of false teachers. So then, as a result, they must then continue to walk in him. You must continue to walk in Christ. The familiar term walk, of course, refers to daily conduct. In the context here, it means primarily to continue believing the truth about Christ, not allowing their knowledge of Christ to waver. And in broader terms, though, walking with Christ means living in union with him. It means to maintain a lifestyle that's patterned after his. 1 John 2.6 states, The one who says... He abides in him, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. When faced with the dilemma that confronts Christians in, in our daily lives, our guide should be to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. Christ is the source of our spiritual nourishment, our spiritual growth, and our spiritual fruit. And as we walk in Christ, we are now being built up in him. And so that connotes a process of being more and more like Jesus Christ. As we walk in, we are transformed more and more into his image. Now the, the phrase here, being built up, is a present tense participle. And so that indicates a continuous action. So it's not just a one time or a few times action of being built up, but it's, it's continuous action of being built up. By studying the word of grace, which is able to build you up, according to Acts twenty thirty two, believers will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And will come to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, Ephesians four thirteen. By being firmly rooted in Christ and growing in him, then it results in our being established in our faith. 
Now, the, the participle here, the word that Paul uses in this verse, established, indicates that it is God who will establish the believers. Because that, par- that participle is in what's called the, the passive voice. So that means that it's something that is being done to the believer and that it's being done by God. And God is the one that establishes us. As we have a firm foundation for faith based on walking with Christ, then this imperative for a healthy Christian life. And we see this in other passages in, in the New Testament. Romans 16.25, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, and 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, and even Jude, verse 24. And then the final exhortation that he has here in, at the end of verse 7 is, you be overflowing with gratitude. Now, this is the last of the four participles in verse 7. Overflowing is the only one in what's called the active voice. So it is a response to the other three. Believers who are firmly rooted in Christ are being built up in him and then are established in their faith. And this then will result in being Overflow, having overflowed with gratitude, with thanksgiving to God. Hebrews chapter 13, 15 states, Through him, that is Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. A grateful heart, a heart that gives thanksgiving to God who is thankful for all that God has given us in Christ, then it will further strengthen our grip on the truth because as we are thankful of him, we are conscious of the fact that we are dependent on him. Again, we give back our praise of thanksgiving to him. Praise then completes the, the circle in which the blessing that flows to us from God returns to him in our form of praise, adoration, and thanksgiving. So by taking in the truth of the word, then we get a strong mind. By living out those truths, we receive a full assurance that Christ is who he claimed to be. And as we are assured of that, then we can appropriate the riches that are his legacy for believers and walk in him. And as we walk in him, we'll grow in him and become established in our faith. As a result, we'll give praise to God with thanksgiving. Okay, that's the end of our passage. Now, as, as you look at the questions uh, for the discussion groups followed there, addresses some of the issues here with other verses to look at them. But as, as you go through the question and think of and discuss Think of the the central theme that Paul has here, that we are to be rooted and being built up and established in our faith, and how that affects then our lives both within the body of Christ, but also how that is a testimony to those outside of the body of Christ. Because these qualities that we looked at in this passage certainly first must be applied with each other in the body of Christ, but they have a significant impact also as how it is a testimony to the world outside as we seek to live for
for him in, in the world. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you help us to apply this to our lives as we seek to glorify you, Lord, as we seek to be transformed more into the image of Christ. But, Lord, help us to do this with thanksgiving and praise to you. And thank you in Christ's name. Amen.